You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much to everybody for coming to join us this evening, and uh, thank you to everybody in the future who will be listening to this podcast recording. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, the Boon, Wurrung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are present or who are listening today. Yes, welcome everyone uh, this evening. It's all very civilised. We've got blankets, we've got tea up here. It's a bit chilly. Uh, I'm Lauren Taylor and this is Simon Winkler. You can normally hear us together presenting a program called Breaking and Entering on Triple R on Thursdays, a new releases music show. Tonight we look forward to uh, bringing you, which is the second in a series that we've put together here at M Pavilion over the summer as part of their M Talks program called Wednesday Assembly. We are assembled here this Wednesday to hear from a panel uh, addressing some essential M Pavilion themes. Yes, that's right. And for February, the theme is Earth, a place of reconciliation and a reconciliation of place, a theme which couldn't be more relevant to the times that we're living in. Essentially, we are asking the question, how are we to create and sustain a more harmonious relationship with our environment? And so this evening, we'll be talking about food, energy, healing, healing and renewal in this new climate era. I'm going to introduce our wonderful panel of guests that we have here uh, with us speaking to that, the that theme. We've got next to me Sophie Miles, who is the co-founder of Mistletone Records and Touring. Uh, Sophie's also a Kundalini yoga teacher and uh, interested in understanding how our mantra chants and sound current vibrations can facilitate healing in our mind, bodies and spirits. And uh, we're also thrilled to be joined by Alara Briggs-Patterson at the end of, of this seated panel. Alara is a Yoda Yoda musician, composer, filmmaker, Wayapa worker and involved in the climate justice movement. We're so honoured to have you with us this evening. So much of your work touches upon the core themes that we will be exploring. Uh, Alara's approach to music is inspirational to other musicians and First Nations people. The music itself, using a variety of instruments and technologies such as the double bass and loop station, as well as inspired by ancient oral traditions. Alara is a natural storyteller and harnesses hard-hitting spoken word to take listeners on a journey, reflecting cultural, spiritual, and environmental empowerment. We'll be speaking to you, Alara, about your music as well as your filmmaking and uh, numerous other activities as well. And we also have uh, the wonderful Meg Ullman and Patrick Jones, who uh, together are artists as family, uh, who have established the School of Applied Neo-Peasantry. I look forward to hearing more about <laughs> what you both do and uh, defining neo-peasantry. Do you want to do that for us now, actually? What does that mean? Um, well, it's a bit of a cheeky term, but it's also a serious term. Um, the neo locates privilege, um, choosing to be peasant-like. Um, I'll keep this brief. We'll, we'll go into more of this later, but... Um, but really, the serious part is reaching back to our ancestors who were low carbon, who made culture around low carbon economy, 
um, who worked the soil, who had sacred uh, plant and tree laws, um, yeah, are reaching back to our, uh, our own ancestors before the great um, traumatizing um, of our people, I guess. Well, we might um, get you each to sort of, I guess, describe or tell us a bit more about yourself and your practice. We were just talking with artists as family. Do you want to maybe start with uh, a bit about, about yourself? Sure. Um, we live on a quarter acre uh, in uh, Jajurong, spoken for country in Dalesford in central Victoria. We, uh, Patrick and I, are half of the artist collective artist as family. Um, the other two members are our seven-year-old son, Blackwood, and our nine-and-a-half-year-old, Jack Russell, Zero. And together we make art of the everyday that doesn't appear in art galleries. We have started the School of Applied Neo-Peasantry as a way to perform our art of the everyday. And depending on the season... Seasons instruct and inform our work that we perform. So sometimes we are making cheese and butter and yogurt and kefir as part of our daily performance. Sometimes we are composting. Sometimes we are pickling carrots. Sometimes we are making acorn meal from our acorns that have fallen from our oak tree. Sometimes we are... Um, gathering in the bush with friends around a fire to have sacred fire ceremonies. Do you want to...? Yeah, I, um, the practice is really uh, attempting to address all the systemic problems of our culture, um, competition, competitive and linear economies, um, uh, pollution ideology, um, psychopathic politics, um, uh, privatised medicine, um, privatised education, privatised everything really, um, and really try to re-perform as second nation peoples on first peoples country, um, ways that would both honour the ancestors of Jajurong, um peoples, but also our own ancestors. That's so I, I feel like our practice is just putting together all the pieces of making economy and making culture that is transitioning from living in the matrix of scientific capital. Excellent. Well, tonight certainly we are talking about, as we mentioned, creating and sustaining a more harmonious relationship with the earth. You are teachers at the School of Neo-Peasantry, but of course you have uh, very clearly mentioned that you are lifelong students and constantly learning, uh, making mistakes and kind of integrating what you take from those into uh, the curriculum or into your future. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the core lessons or maybe even some of the core values that form the part of the School of Neo-Peasantry that you've come to? Um, well, it's, I guess, the core values um, derive from um, being humble enough to be taught by more than humans, um, to sit and listen. Um, this, we're, we're infants at this. Um, uh, we don't profess to have any 
real knowledge in this, but um, it's, it's a long process and we're really at the beginning. Um, um, so the teaching we do are more pragmatic um, things. Uh, so when you start composting your own shit and turning it into precious hue manure, you, you, and, and, and you do what we love to do is, is move from fecophobes to fecophiles um, and to close the poop loop and we start growing our food in that hue manure and, and then we eat the earth again and then the earth eats us um, after we become very much part of that circular economy. Um, so, yeah, humanuring and fermenting. Well, humanure composting is a form of fermentation. And fermentation um, is ancient in all, all cultures, um, early cultures. And so I think there's a reclamation of our cultures, our old people in uh, fermenting microbes that are ancient. Um, we don't have all our beautiful old ancestors' microbes in our guts anymore, unfortunately, but um, we still have enough to connect in that way. We have enough in our bone memory. Um, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, this theories coming out um, from our tradition called morphic resonance, which, um, which is basically another way to connect. I won't go into that theory now, but um, there, are, there are many ways that we are really trying to put back the pieces of... Um, several hundred years of being trammeled. We were dispossessed from the 12th... My, my people were uh, dispossessed from ancestral land in the 1200s in feudal England and Scotland and Ireland. Well, particularly in England, it started in the 1200s. And um, by the 1900s, we were pretty um, traumatised peoples. And then we... Uh, some of my ancestors came over here as convicts and then we displaced and... Um, Dispossessed, and we're part of the traumatizing of First Nations people here. So there's a big, long narrative of several hundred years that I feel very close to, and I feel very close to the trouble of that, um, but but not staying in the sickness of it as well. Like, what what can we actually do to to reperform um, economy and culture that doesn't stay in the sickness of um, settler culture and a dom dominating culture? Excellent. Well, certainly talking about health, and uh, as you mentioned within that answer, the concept of food, nourishment, fermentation, I think we would love to return to that and maybe get everybody's thoughts on the subject of personal and, inter, uh, and communal and biological health. But um, if we could move briefly uh, to Alara, I guess in terms of your own practice as a trainer of Wayapa work, uh, certainly an earth connection practice which is based very much on indigenous wisdom. A primary focus of Wayapa work is taking care of the earth as the starting point for well-being and harmony in all things. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to this practice and, and what it means to you? Yeah. Oh, hello. <laughs> I don't need to talk that close to the mic. <laughs> um, I, would, I would just like to pay my acknowledgements um, to the Kulin Nation, to the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong, um, and just let their ancestors know that I'm grateful to be here and that I've come, come in peace and I've come with purpose um, and to acknowledge all of our ancestors that are always with us and First Nations people who are here. Um, I'm actually not doing any Waiapa work <laughs> teaching anymore, but I still... Uh, 
bring the concepts and the teachings that I've learned through doing the diploma with Jamie and uh, Sarah at the Y Upper Work. Um, does, do you guys know what that is? No. So it's an Aboriginal Earth Connection practice. Um, it's a modality and it's like, like sort of like Aboriginal yoga. It's like a spiritual mindfulness um, using like using your imagination to go to beautiful places in nature and and find the calmness and to embody it with the different um, elements so it's like one to 14 from the creator and it's really inclusive of all cultures and all religions so anybody can do it and imagine whatever their own creator is whether it's a, a bonjo or whether it's you know god or, or whoever it is um, and then it goes through the different elements, so like the sun, the moon, um, rain, fire, like all of the different things that um, every human on earth has felt at some point in their life. Um, so yeah, it's awesome, but the main connection that I made with it is I started to understand why there were some people just not cottoning on to like, let's do something to protect this land. And like, let's change, um, you know, let's, let's protect country. Let's hopefully stop people um, being so racist. Let's acknowledge that climate justice um, needs, there needs to be a focus on First Nations rights globally. And that without looking at Aboriginal and Indigenous sovereignty, um, without seeing that as the root causes of a lot of these things and the continuous colonization over multiple countries over multiple um, hundreds of years then then we're not really looking at the root of any problems and we're just going to chase our tails so the part of why that I added to my like that I didn't keep teaching people in like a physical practice type of way but I put those learnings into my music and into my lifestyle and into my guidance when I'm talking to other young Indigenous artists or giving giving advice to anybody um, when hopefully just when they ask for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the connectedness of everything and then it's that like continuing in with, with life and understanding then how much more connected everything is around you and that like we're not disconnected from anyone or anything. Absolutely. I guess um, you know, a discussion that sort of followed the bushfire crisis is, you know, how it represents this disconnection with the earth and then there's this need to restore a balance and a healthier relationship with country. Each of you maybe approach this idea in similar ways, but we'd love to ask each of you in turn, how does your work seek to achieve a more harmonious relationship with the earth. Perhaps starting with you, Sophie, and maybe to give us a brief overview of your... Tell us about yourself and your practice as well. Sure. Well, I guess I'm speaking from a couple of uh, perspectives, um, which to me are all interconnected because it's, it's all me. But um, uh, on the one hand, I work with musicians... Um, I also work with my partner at home with our two cats. <laughs> and um, we tour musicians from overseas and take them to festivals and performances around Australia. And we uh, are the people who do all the work behind the scenes so that they can come and share 
um, and connect with their audiences here. And we also run a record label and work with wonderful local musicians such as the Orb Weavers, Hate Rock, uh, Cash Savage and The Last Drinks and others. Um, on the other hand, I, in the last few years, have been training to be a yoga teacher and starting to teach and to share my practice. And um, I'm involved with a group called Meditate for Climate Fridays, which we meet every week and we sit and we meditate with different um, leaders from different traditions. Um, and that too is about just imagining uh, a kinder reality, imagining a way for country to heal, um, but also being able to support each other and be able to support activists because being an activist is so incredibly stressful on people's nervous systems. Um, we're all living in this heightened state of anxiety and tension through the constant barrage of um, information and the reason there, we have lots of reasons to be angry and to be fearful um, and to be anxious. But when we're in that state of heightened um, reactivity, we're going to burn ourselves out. And, you know, I see that in myself and I see it in lots of people that uh, I work with and that I love, that the pressure is so much. And so for me, being able to share simple practices like meditation and being able to come to, to find a place of stillness, it's very helpful and very replenishing. And I think, I mean, for me, I need these practices just to stay sane, you know, let alone be better than sane. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a sort of, uh, it's something that, my practice is an anchor for me to keep my mental health together, really. Absolutely. And um, perhaps, uh, Meg, if we could continue the discussion. Obviously, we've touched a little bit upon artists as family and the, the ways in which you're seeking to achieve a harmonious connection. Perhaps we could also look at the ways in, or maybe continue looking at the ways in which you're healing the earth or preventing further damage, I suppose. So where we live is uh, a very high bushfire-prone region. Um, we are surrounded by mainly eucalypt forest. So we, our, we do lots of bushfire prep on our property and in the surrounding uh, bush. We have uh, 11 goats. We're part of a goat collective. And we have our goats... Um, we move them around. We have electric fencing that we move them around to different areas so they can do bushfire mitigation work. And we get the benefits of hanging out with the goats because they're so cute. <laughs> um, also, in terms of community resilience, especially in regional... Well, all areas, but I feel particularly in regional areas where people are a bit more scattered geographically... Um, we facilitate a number of different community groups um, that have regular monthly workshops and gatherings and they're all non-monetary, so free and available to everybody who wants to come along. Um, and the topics for these uh, workshops, we have a monthly uh, fermenting workshop called Dalesford Culture Club. We have a free monthly herbal medicine group uh, called wild fennel and I guess the 
we have several others which I'll get to in a minute, but I guess the when you think about quite a number of small towns uh, recently in regional New South Wales that were fire affected and there was one road into their town and one road out, the same road, and that these communities were very isolated after the fire, sometimes for 10 days or so and no food, no water, um, cut off from power and phones. And when we're in these situations, what are we going to do? What are we going to eat? How are we going to nourish ourselves physically? How are we going to be with each other when the shit hits the fan? So if somebody injures themselves and there's no medicine, how are we going to heal ourselves? So really trying to look at what our community needs and try to um, work together as a community to um, draw on the knowledge that already exists in that community and share it around widely. We have a free seed library that's recently been established. So it's part of our book library. So it's just a whole lot of beautifully presented seed packets. So you borrow them like you would a book or you can just take them and you grow them, you share that food with your family and your community and you keep one of the plants to grow to maturity, you save those seeds, you dry them, you return them to the library. So in terms of food security and bioregional um, plants and herbs, that's a really great way that's working in lots of different communities of um, setting up seed libraries. Uh, we have a natural beekeeping group and that was a really big thing for New South Wales. Um, you know, thousands of hives were taken out in the fires. So, you know, I think everybody knows how essential bees are and all, nat all pollinators are. So really trying to um, encourage more people to have, to have um, bees and also to stay away from sugar and move towards honey because sugar is grown in a monoculture and is from usually from the warmer regions like Queensland and really trying to encourage forest polyculture, insects like bees and to, um, and to take enough honey just for just what you need but obviously leave enough for the bees that you don't need to um, give them any sugar water. Um, we have um, monthly fire circles that we hold which are really circles of deep listening and being present and it's a circle in the forest we all sit on logs, we're all on the same level and we have a fire. We bring a dish, we share it and then we just sort of, whether it's a grief circle or whether we're talking about our, our origin stories, just a real coming together. And before we set up one of these, before we set up these circles, there was a woman who I used to be on quite a few different community groups with and I like her but she would just give me the shits. And we started sitting in circles together and crying and sharing stories. And now when I see her and I am with her on one of these groups, I know why she is like she is. And I feel like if we're going to be working together in community, then it's really important that we take off our masks and be honest with ourselves and each other. And that's just been a really wonderfully healing benefit. Do you want to talk a bit more about that, Patrick? And um, she also knows why you are who, who you are. I think that's the thing we've found in the circles is that, is that um, the, the deep listening um, helps us to move from judgment and um, I guess a, you know, a very 
um, mind-orientated way of thinking um, to a much more embodied and empathetic place. Um, and so they've become a really big part of, uh, yeah, processing anxiety. Um, certainly understanding that one person's grief um, gives permission for others to locate the grief in themselves. I think that, that if we do this work by ourselves, we can go so far, but when we do it together, um, we're starting to really understand not understand how connected we are um, uh, in yeah in uh, and just how close our pain um, is so one person's story um, is, enables another person's story to come out and so there's there's great catharsis there and there's great healing um, in, in that sort of work um, so I mean I think in, in a way uh, our story was sort of began uh, about 12 years ago really looking at the food and energy crisis and food and energy capitalism and saying we don't want to participate in this how do we not participate in this and so it was coming from an activist end and going deeper and deeper into that place and becoming involved in soil communities and earth others and you know it was, uh, 12 years ago we couldn't imagine ourselves sitting around a circle <laughs> sharing our grief, like that was just nothing we were going to do then, I, I think it would be fair to say. But um, just how, I guess, permaculture principles and reculturing um, peasant ancestral ways of being on land um, it, it ha has enabled us, or it's just the obvious step, the next obvious step is to, is to, to come together in a kind of community sufficiency with not just our food and energy resources, but our, our emotional needs and, um, and our caring for ourselves, which is so um, embedded in caring for country. Yeah. Well, Alara, I guess very similar to Sophie, your own practice covers uh, a variety of different disciplines, including uh, music. And I guess aside from Wiyapa work, uh, which we've discussed previously, how... Oh, yeah, we'd love to hear about how music sort of exists in your life as a way to not only connect with other people in a mentoring capacity and as a performer, but also how it helps you to connect to country as well. Yeah, so for me as a Yoro Yoro Winya, Yoro Yoro woman, really music is, it's, I'm not doing anything new by practicing music on a, on a regular basis. Um, and by sharing songs and stories and um, and helping to pass on the knowledge from what I've been shared with me and then what's going forward to the next generation. I'm not doing anything new. It just seems that I've, I've found my culture in a modern context. Um, and so when it comes to music, I, I sort of started just as a bass player for about 10, 15 years and I've been playing solo and writing my own music for about two years. And I found it's an incredible way to, and an incredible platform to share those stories and, um, and to become more connected with more people around the country and around the world. And what I've found is continuing my, my journey on trying to understand what song lines are and how and how they work and and understanding how they've been um, 
pulled apart and, and wrecked and ruined here, um, especially here in Victoria and the eastern, southeastern states of Australia. It's, uh, it's been one of my dreams to like try and put those song lines back together. But like, how do you do that when your songs and your stories are based on landmarks and, um, and the environment around you that has physically been and continues to be destroyed on, the on a daily basis? Um, so for me, I'm, I'm trying to use my music in, in like an activist type of way. So it's, it's great because I'm able to have the platform where I get to play at um, all sorts of events where there's, there's government people and, and councillors and all sorts of people and to be able to have that voice and say, hey, this is, this is what I think. Like you should stop draining um, the barker and you should leave the water in the rivers. Um, and we should... Like for me, I, I've got a poem that I'd really like to share. It's actually, I wrote it on the 3rd of January. Um, I actually went on a, on a holiday, which was a really strange time to go on a holiday, on the 4th of January. But, but the 3rd was the day that I went for a walk in the morning. And then like later in that day, I was like getting ready to go. I flew to Brisbane, but later that day, there was like smoke coming in and like all of the, like it was just, it was horrible. Um, but I wrote this and I found it quite strange that like I was seeing all these posts on Facebook of people being like, this is like devastating and this is horrible and this and that. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And it's like, I was like, well, yeah, like no duh, this was going to happen. So I like was really angry and I was like upset um, that people were surprised. Um, and I felt that I had already almost like lived through that grief that those most of the people around me were feeling at that moment but also um the grief of the country and not not looking at it from like that human perspective but looking at it more in a spiritual way and looking um looking back and, and trying to think what would my ancestors be saying and what would what would the creator beings were saying when you're thinking about song lines and the the stories of huge, huge things like the ice ages and things going through this country. When you look at um, environmental, massive environmental things like what's happening right now, it felt relevant to write this piece and it just kind of like out of me. Um, it's called The Burning Dream. This time when humans broke law, they went underground where it is sacred. The tears of their creator beings were discovered the fossilised remains of their ancestors were removed from their resting places. The veins of the mother herself were tapped and intravenously poisoned, fracked. The creator spirits from the beginnings of time were so angry about how greedy, stupid and uncultured humans had become that they spontaneously combusted, began a burn that would teach the lesson once and for all. When the law was broken, there will be consequences. Lessons must be taught. The consequences of this broken law was much worse than expected. The creator beings, all awoken from the atrocities that humans allowed and forced upon each other. Walls of fire were released across the lands. The anger and rage was so intense that those spirits didn't care if it killed a thousand children. The humans were devastated as everything they knew and once loved burned to ashes. 
they were scared to death. Some walked the fine line between courage and stupidity, trying to protect land that they thought they were entitled to. Rest in peace to the people past. Rest in peace to billions of animals perished. The spirits of the creator beings had tried to warn the humans, push them back into line like naughty children being contemned to time out. But this had obviously become a much more serious offence. Massacres of the oldest living cultures in the world who had a healthy relationship with fire, used burning, who, people who used burning as a way to care for this land was having its consequences seen. Finally, after all the hurt, pain, grief, flames, suffering and sadness, that dominant culture realised what they had done. It's time to behave. Enough, you naughty children. Ruining it for everybody else, the wrath of the creator beings, having awoken to let terror spread through the lands, that was enough, they hoped, and quietly laid back down to watch how their lessons would unfold hoping to every last part of this country this would be their final awakening and they fell asleep again in a burning dream. So that's, yeah, that's like time is, is so much more than just this moment and just this hundred years, but it's like what's happening in this country is so much bigger and and therefore the solutions need to we need to be looking a lot further back to my ancestors who knew this country and to the people and to the old people who still know this country and that knowledge needs to be shared forward i know i speak on everyone on behalf of everyone i say thank you so much for sharing that extraordinary poem and certainly extremely powerful reflection on the events which are continuing to unfold and the devastating disconnection that exists between um, the current uh, sort of states of being and the systems and the, the earth as well. So thank you very much again. We would like to continue the discussion about the crisis, the environmental crisis, which has occupied so much of the political, uh, social discourse over the, the last months, perhaps to talk about the responses from everyone's communities and your, your own sort of reflections as well. Perhaps Sophie, could we talk a little bit about um, your response? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm still tingling from Alara's poem, your powerful words. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think in the, in the part of music that I work in and occupy, the artists I work with are, I would say, all of them are empaths, people who feel deeply and I think it's safe to say that everyone I work with is feeling devastated. And I think perhaps music uh, as well as poetry and, and these other arts that just cut through and just hit us in the heart um, have a powerful part to play. It's interesting to me that, you know, the conversations I'm having with so many artists who are touring artists, and that's how musicians make their money um, nowadays. There's, there's really 
there's a whole lot of other issues there to talk about the way that capitalism has, you know, my when I when I started um, out with a record label, it was this kind of rare time in history where it felt like the internet was this place that was going to be a radical place of opportunity, you know. Everything was changing and the old structures were falling away and the old major labels were going to disappear and we would all be independent and we could communicate through this internet. And the and I see what's happened 15 years later and I can barely recognise where we are now. And I think I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, I had this thought recently that maybe when these social networks came along that gave us this illusion of connection, maybe the reason they were successful was because that was something we had already lost, you know, that feeling of community, that removal of music from its context of connecting human beings. And I was recently working with a woman called Holly Herndon who... Uh, is based in Berlin, but she grew up in uh, the Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee and she she talks about this idea of interdependent music, which I love so much. And she talked about some of the, the music and the technologies that evolved, like when you look at the mountain singers, like the bluegrass singers in the Appalachian Mountains, they have that nasally twang, the way they sing, and that was because they needed to project their voice across the mountains to the people at the other side. But then if you start to look at other cultures, like the Bulgarian women's choirs, the way they sing, it sounds so similar. Or in um, different parts of Indonesia, there are these singing traditions and you can play them all back to back and you're like, these people are singing the same music. And of course, music is... It's that wordless connection that we're used to to connect with each other. So on the one hand, I, I see this devastation that we're all feeling about what our, the, the, the footprint our actions are creating when we're flying people around the world, when we're pressing records on plastic, you know, all of these, uh, we start to see the consequences. But I also feel that I also feel the injustice of, you know, the most the people who care the most are the ones who are beating themselves up. Of course, we all have to be responsible and do what we can to change. But I think sometimes we tear each other apart and we, we don't focus on the criminals uh, who... the climate criminals who have got us all into the situation we are in now. So... And that is by no means, I, I'm not letting myself or any of the, the people I work with off the hook. It's clear that what we do is unsustainable. Um, and at the moment, I'm, I'm just putting one foot after another and seeing where that, where that leaves me. But also recognising that when you talk about energy, live music, the, the act of human beings making music and others being there to listen and to connect, that creates an energy which is different to anything I've ever experienced and it is powerful and it's real and it matters. Um, yeah. That's right. It's a way of reminding us of that interdependency that you were talking about before and strengthening the bonds of the community that are, are so critical at this time for sure. How about you, uh, Meg and Patrick, how are you seeing your communities uh, responding to the, the climate era? 
Uh, I'll go first. Um, I think because of the... <coughs> uh, because we are in such a fire-prone region, I think everybody's doing the practical stuff of trying to protect homes, protect our community, do forest work. Um, lots of tree plantings, lots of um, clearing up of the bush and things like that. And I definitely know what you were saying, Sophie, about social media because whenever I went on, especially in the, the very fiery days, when I was on social media and just overcome, my feed was overcome with so much information and so many photos and so many stories about the fires. When I was away from my computer, I was feeling very in the moment, very focused, very empowered, um, very practically driven and motivated. But as soon as I went online, I was so full of anxiety, feeling so frightened for, <laughs> for the world, for, for everything. I just found it so overwhelming. So I really had to monitor how I was accessing the technology and how it was making me feel. Um, and I hadn't really had that before with social media. I've, I had disliked it for many other reasons, just being caught in the algorithm. And, but that was a, a really big wake-up call. Um, in terms of our community, we're seeing um, all of the inaction that's happening on a, um, a national, federal government stage is being mimicked in our own local Shire Council. And that's very disheartening to see because our region is known to be very progressive and um, very permaculture and very green and very um, lots of creative, arty people doing really fantastic things and working on great projects. And to see our local council moving in the opposite direction is not the way we would like it to go. Um, yeah, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to bring it back to uh, a bit more detail around clearing up the bush um, because um, this is the, I think what Meg is talking about there is the blackberries, gorse and broom, which are our old ancestral plants, m m incredibly nourishing um, plant um, medicines that are, are dominant um, species and they um, create a fuel load which is um, extremely high in Dalesford and Hepburn because of our high rainfall and our steep gullies where, which were um, trammeled by gold mining and so they're infested with gorse and blackberry and broom and so um, we're using goats uh, to munch those down underneath the eucalypts and the blackwood wattles in order to be able to return traditional burning to the country. So we're actually using uh, our ancestral animals that we, we have close relationships to, to actually um, send the ecology, which is it, has been in a traumatized state since the gold rush um, and, and subsequent um, ruptures, um, to actually, rather than go in with the bulldozers, go in with pesticides or go in with what I call whitefella burning, or asset protection burning and just, you know, giving a year or two of bushfire protection, um, reading the land, 
for what it needs and actually enabling it to move into the next succession and return it to um, uh, uh, indigenous biota. And we're already noticing that, so that once you take two metre high blackberries, weeds and gorse out, you don't get the crown fires, so you don't get the intense fires, but you start to get the, um, uh, the wallaby grasses, kangaroo grasses, the, the vanilla lilies, the, um, the fireweeds um, coming back. And this is, this is very exciting. So this is very much part of the healing, very much about the pragmatic relationship, understanding the historical um, incursions on the land and also being part of the healing through um, not this science, what I would call a white fellow science of correct and incorrect species, but actually listening to the land and saying, what is happening here? And in the hawthorns that grow in that forest, um, they have become the major habitat um, trees for ringtail possums because hawthorns are thorny, small, dense plants. And the, even, even though we're, we're planting and um, propagating sweet basaria, which were the small, dense, th thorny plants that used to be there and replanting those back into the forest, the hawthorns are providing that habitat for ringtails. So there are all these stories of newcomer and old-timer uh, interrelationships that are going on and being close and staying with those stories and being open to more than human consciousness and learning or teaching um, is, is a very big part of, I, I think, my day-to-day. -day. And that, that's what keeps, keeps me focused and grounded in those stories, yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, there's certainly been so much wisdom, knowledge and insight from, uh, from our panellists. It's such a privilege um, for Lauren and I and everyone to be joined by, by you this evening. I noticed the time indicates that we may be approaching the conclusion of our allocated um, <laughs> I suppose, uh, yeah, talks, but we would like to open uh, the, the floor for any uh, member of our audience who had a question that they might like to direct at, uh, at the panel in general or any particular member. Um, please raise your hands and I'll run over with my microphone to to bring it, if, that, if there's anything you would like to, any comments or questions. Otherwise, uh, we will <laughs> continue with maybe some final, final questions. Sure. I guess I just wanted to ask you all, I guess we're talking about today, you know, alternate sources of energy and, and, and healing and renewal in this new climate era and just interested how each of you perhaps define um, energy in the context of this discussion, I mean, do you distinguish between sources of physical, spiritual, and emotional sources of energy? So, I'll start with you. Uh, well, in some sense, I think I, I don't distinguish. I see it as uh, I see everything as energy in a way. I think the work that I do is is all about my energy. I I don't have any particular skills. I'm just being available to the artist and doing what needs putting the energy in that needs to be done and in a, a yogic sense you know there's a a saying where the attention goes the energy flows so the idea that we as physical beings are a manifestation of energy and there's that that idea is in other modalities like Chinese medicine the idea of chi and life force so for me personally being able to connect with my own energy and with, those, with others as well. I, I love so much what you were saying about 
being open to other forms of not just human consciousness. I think it's incredibly important um, that we connect to, to animal and earth consciousness. And, uh, yeah, I think very much in, in learning to meditate and learning to join in a group um, where we can feel the group energy, start to feel into each other's energy, that is, you know, it's, become, it's becoming so apparent that we're never going to imagine a better future when we're staring at our phones. We have to connect with each other, you know, heart to heart. Even though that's scary and even though that makes us vulnerable, there's actually no other way through this, I don't, I don't believe. But, and that, that's where our energy, each other's energy can come together, I hope. Meg, did you want to speak to that as well? Sure. Thank you, Sophie. Um, I guess a big part of our story is how, do we, how are we to live and how are we to be accountable to our decisions, how are we to be responsible for all of our actions and being responsible for our own energy intake and own energy making um, it really informs our daily practice. So we are car free, we are supermarket free, we are school free, we are <laughs> as much as we can western medicine free, we are, we don't fly in aeroplanes, so we are really trying to take daily responsibility for all of our actions. So growing food, our house is powered by wood, so we go into the bush and to our local tip by, with bicycle trailers and with wheelbarrows and we bring all that wood home and we chop it up. Um, yeah, really trying to look at what, what fuels us, whether it's the composting whether it's the, the oh, I feel like I've lost my words, can you help me? Um, yeah, I think, I think just to take on from there, Meg, I, just chopping, chopping firewood, I, I think there's an old proverb, Eastern proverb, before enlightenment, chop water and, oh, sorry, chop, <laughs> carry water and chop wood, and after enlightenment, carry water and chop wood. And I, I feel in that life is complex and I'm, I'm not about to reduce it to a simple way of being. I love um, what Tyson Yunker Porter talks about in terms of um, reclaiming um, first people's law. I think that's a fundamental thing that all of us need to throw our energy behind in the bigger um, political um, story. But in our personal stories, the carrying of water and the chopping of wood and the saying hello to the neighbours and the catching of rain and growing vegetables and fermenting those vegetables and storing those vegetables in the cellar for the winter, um, these, are, these are not simplistic things. These are complex, important things. These are taking back, taking, taking back what's been uh, usurped or what we've you know, handed over power that we've handed over, 
energy that we've handed over to very powerful um, people. And so, like, while we don't shy away from the problematic mortgage we have to make our tenure in order to grow, you know, to put nut trees and fruit trees in the ground and veggies, um, tenure that's been taken from Jajurong people, we don't shy away from that big political story. But there is food and energy resources we can attend to now. The bigger geopolitical and problematic terra nullius property story is something we need to keep working towards. Um, but we can grow our own food and vegetables and get off the energy grids of industrialization in those two big areas of capitalism that are destroying the world. So I think I'll leave it with you. Hey. Cool. Um, for me, I, I want to talk about a little bit of spiritual, ancestral energy um, that I have to get up and and invite those old ones in every day to be able to have the conversations that I have to have um, on a regular basis to, to do my art practice as, as a self-managed artist and training my mum up now to help manage me and um, deal with all that admin because it's a shocking amount of admin in the arts industry, as I'm sure <laughs> Sophie knows all about. <laughs> but basically, for me, like my, my energy, it's like sometimes I'm not sure if people who, who don't, basically people in privileged positions, and what I mean by that is people who don't understand the emotional energy that it takes to call someone out on their racist behaviour or their, um, you know, misogynistic behaviour or their whatever inappropriate behaviour it is. Like, that takes a lot of energy um, and and a lot of courage. And sometimes I really can't be bothered. But it's also part of my work and, and part of what I've made as my living. So it's this, like, balance of... Um, I guess trying to find the balance of being able to do the art and do the healing and write the songs and share the share the music, which is it's also a lot of energy. But when the audience is there and they're with me and um, and they're sharing that love back, that that also feeds me back. And so that's like that circular process. But it's a lot harder when it's like somebody's coming to me and they're like, oh, we want this and this and this at the performance. And it's like, you want me to carry a double bass, a bass amp, a keyboard stand, a keyboard and all the things that I bring my loop pedal and all the leads and the mixer and everything to the gig to play for four minutes. You want me to bring that all in and then, and then set it all up and then do a sound check and then play for four minutes and then for me to go home. So it's like, yeah. You know, it's just a bit of bit of truth and a bit of like that's that's the energy that I'm feeling a bit tired from today. So a bit of a whinge from me, but also like a little glimpse into the kinds of things that um, are happening and where the energy goes and where it comes from and where I try and put it back into. Well, we want to thank very much our guests uh, today. Uh, if you could join us. Uh, with a round of applause in thanking uh, Sophie Miles, Alara Briggs-Patterson and Artist's Family, Meg Ullman and Patrick Jones today. And thank you too. You have yeah. been amazing moderators. Oh.
Lauren and Simon, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to the team at M Pavilion as well for making this possible. Uh, Wednesday Assembly is a free monthly series that we've put together um, at M Pavilion as part of M Talks. We're going to be back here on uh, Wednesday, March the 4th. Uh, with some special guests discussing M Pavilion's March theme, which is knowledge, shared learning and shared power. Thanks for coming out too. And hopefully you've been warm enough with your little blankets on there. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.